We continue with the 1982 opinion of the court in Nixon v. Fitzgerald. Picking up with Part 3, Section A of the Opinion. This court consistently has recognized that government officials are entitled to some form of immunity from suits for civil damages. In Spalding v. Vilas, 1896, the court considered the immunity available to the Postmaster General in a suit for damages based upon his official acts. Drawing upon principles of immunity developed in English cases at common law, the court concluded that the interests of the people required a grant of absolute immunity to public officers. In the absence of immunity, the court reasoned, executive officials would hesitate to exercise their discretion in a way injuriously affecting the claims of particular individuals, even when the public interest required bold and unhesitating action. Considerations of public policy and convenience therefore compelled a judicial recognition of immunity from suits arising from official acts. In exercising the functions of his office, the head of an executive department, keeping within the limits of his authority, should not be under an apprehension that the motives that control his official conduct may, at any time, become the subject of inquiry in a civil suit for damages. It would seriously cripple the proper and effective administration of public affairs as entrusted to the executive branch of government if he were subjected to any such restraint. Decisions subsequent to Spalding have extended the defense of immunity to actions besides those at common law. In Tenney v. Brandhove, 1951, the court considered whether the passage of 42 U.S.C. section 1983 which made no express provision for immunity for any official, had abrogated the privilege accorded to state legislators at common law. Tenney held that it had not. Examining Section 1983 in light of the presuppositions of our political history and our heritage of legislative freedom, the court found it incredible that Congress would impinge on a tradition so well-grounded in history and reason without some indication of intent more explicit than the general language of the statute. Similarly, the decision in Pearson v. Ray, 1967, involving a Section 1983 suit against a state judge, recognized the continued validity of the absolute immunity of judges for acts within the judicial role. This was a doctrine not for the protection or benefit of a malicious or corrupt judge, but for the benefit of the public, whose interest it is that the judges should be at liberty to exercise their functions with independence and without fear of consequences. The court in Pearson also held that police officers are entitled to a qualified immunity protecting them from suit when their official acts are performed in good faith. In Schuer v. Rhodes, 1974, 
the court considered the immunity available to state executive officials in a Section 1983 suit alleging the violation of constitutional rights. In that case, we rejected the official's claim to absolute immunity under the doctrine of Spalding v. Vilas, finding instead that state executive officials possess a good-faith immunity from Section 1983 suits alleging constitutional violations. Balancing the purposes of Section 1983 against the imperatives of public policy, the court held that, in varying scope, a qualified immunity is available to officers of the executive branch of government, the variation being dependent upon the scope of discretion and responsibilities of the office, and all the circumstances as they reasonably appeared at the time of the action on which liability is sought to be based. As construed by subsequent cases, Schuer established a two-tiered division of immunity defenses in Section 1983 suits. To most executive officers, Schuer accorded qualified immunity. For them, the scope of the defense varied in proportion to the nature of their official functions and the range of decisions that conceivably might be taken in good faith. This functional approach also defined a second tier, however, at which the especially sensitive duties of certain officials, notably judges and prosecutors, required the continued recognition of absolute immunity. This approach was reviewed in detail in Butts v. Economu, 1978, when we considered for the first time the kind of immunity possessed by federal executive officials who are sued for constitutional violations. In Butts, the court rejected an argument based on decisions involving federal officials charged with common law torts, that all high federal officials have a right to absolute immunity from constitutional damages actions concluding that a blanket recognition of absolute immunity would be anomalous in light of the qualified immunity standard applied to state executive officials. We held that federal officials generally have the same qualified immunity possessed by state officials in cases under Section 1983. In so doing, we reaffirmed our holdings that some officials— notably judges and prosecutors, because of the special nature of their responsibilities, require a full exemption from liability. In Butts itself, we upheld a claim of absolute immunity for administrative officials engaged in functions analogous to those of judges and prosecutors. We also left open the question whether other federal officials could show that public policy requires an exemption of that scope. Section B. Our decisions concerning the immunity of government officials from civil damages liability has been guided by the Constitution, federal statutes, and history. Additionally, at least in the absence of explicit constitutional or congressional guidance, 
our immunity decisions have been informed by the common law. This court necessarily also has weighed concerns of public policy, especially as illuminated by our history and the structure of our government. This case now presents the claim that the President of the United States is shielded by absolute immunity from civil damages liability. In the case of the President, the inquiries into history and policy, though mandated independently by our cases, tend to converge. Because the presidency did not exist through most of the development of common law, any historical analysis must draw its evidence primarily from our constitutional heritage and structure. Historical inquiry thus merges almost at its inception with the kind of public policy analysis appropriately undertaken by a federal court. This inquiry involves policies and principles that may be considered implicit in the nature of the president's office in a system structured to achieve effective government under a constitutionally mandated separation of powers. Part 4 Here, a former president asserts his immunity from civil damages claims of two kinds. He stands named as a defendant in a direct action under the Constitution and in two statutory actions under federal laws of general applicability. In neither case has Congress taken express legislative action to subject the president to civil liability for his official acts. Applying the principles of our cases to claims of this kind, we hold that petitioner, as a former president of the United States, is entitled to absolute immunity from damages liability predicated on his official acts. We consider this immunity a functionally mandated incident of the president's unique office, rooted in the constitutional tradition of the separation of powers and supported by our history. Justice Story's analysis remains persuasive. Quote, there are incidental powers belonging to the executive department which are necessarily implied from the nature of the functions which are confided to it. Among these must necessarily be included the power to perform them. The president cannot therefore be liable to arrest, imprisonment, or detention while he is in the discharge of the duties of his office, and for this purpose his person must be deemed, in civil cases at least, to possess an official inviolability. Section A. The President Occupies a Unique Position in the Constitutional Scheme Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution provides that the executive power shall be vested in a President of the United States. This grant of authority establishes the President as the Chief Constitutional Officer of the Executive Branch, entrusted with supervisory and policy responsibilities of utmost discretion and sensitivity. These include the enforcement of federal law. It is the President 
who is charged constitutionally to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. The conduct of foreign affairs, a realm in which the court has recognized that it would be intolerable that courts, without the relevant information, should review and perhaps nullify actions of the executive taken on information properly held secret, and management of the executive branch, a task for which imperative reasons require an unrestricted power in the president to remove the most important of his subordinates in their most important duties. In arguing that the president is entitled only to qualified immunity, the respondent relies on cases in which we have recognized immunity of this scope for governors and cabinet officers. We find these cases to be inapposite. The president's unique status under the Constitution distinguishes him from other executive officials. Because of the singular importance of the president's duties, diversion of his energies by concern with private lawsuits would raise unique risks to the effective functioning of government. As is the case with prosecutors and judges, for whom absolute immunity now is established, a president must concern himself with matters likely to arouse the most intense feelings. Yet, as our decisions have recognized, it is in precisely such cases that there exists the greatest public interest in providing an official the maximum ability to deal fearlessly and impartially with the duties of his office. This concern is compelling where the officeholder must make the most sensitive and far-reaching decisions entrusted to any official under our constitutional system. Nor can the sheer prominence of the president's office be ignored. In view of the visibility of his office and the effect of his actions on countless people, the president would be an easily identifiable target for suits for civil damages. Cognizance of this personal vulnerability frequently could distract a president from his public duties, to the detriment of not only the president and his office, but also the nation that the presidency was designed to serve. Section B. Courts traditionally have recognized the president's constitutional responsibilities and status as factors counseling judicial deference and restraint. For example, while courts generally have looked to the common law to determine the scope of an official's evidentiary privilege, we have recognized that the presidential privilege is rooted in the separation of powers under the Constitution. It is settled law that the separation of powers doctrine does not bar every exercise of jurisdiction over the President of the United States. But our cases also have established that a court, before exercising jurisdiction, must balance the constitutional weight of the interest to be served against the dangers of intrusion on the authority and functions of the executive branch. When judicial action is needed to serve broad public interests 
as when the court acts not in derogation of the separation of powers, but to maintain their proper balance, or to vindicate the public interest in an ongoing criminal prosecution, the exercise of jurisdiction has been held warranted. In the case of this merely private suit for damages based on a president's official acts, we hold it is not. Section C. In defining the scope of an official's absolute privilege, this court has recognized that the sphere of protected action must be related closely to the immunity's justifying purposes. Frequently, our decisions have held that an official's absolute immunity should extend only to acts in performance of particular functions of his office. But the court also has refused to draw functional lines finer than history and reason would support. In view of the special nature of the president's constitutional office and functions, we think it appropriate to recognize absolute presidential immunity from damages liability for acts within the outer perimeter of his official responsibility. Under the Constitution and laws of the United States, the President has discretionary responsibilities in a broad variety of areas, many of them highly sensitive. In many cases, it would be difficult to determine which of the President's innumerable functions encompassed a particular action. In this case, for example, Respondent argues that he was dismissed in retaliation for his testimony to Congress, a violation of 5 U.S.C. Section 7211 and 18 U.S.C. Section 1505. The Air Force, however, has claimed that the underlying reorganization was undertaken to promote efficiency, assuming that Petitioner Nixon ordered the reorganization in which respondent lost his job, an inquiry into the president's motives could not be avoided under the kind of functional theory asserted both by respondent and the dissent. Inquiries of this kind could be highly intrusive. Here, respondent argues that petitioner Nixon would have acted outside the outer perimeter of his duties by ordering the discharge of an employee who was lawfully entitled to retain his job in the absence of such cause as will promote the efficiency of the service. Because Congress has granted this legislative protection, respondent argues, no federal official could, within the outer perimeter of his duties of office, cause Fitzgerald to be dismissed without satisfying this standard in prescribed statutory proceedings. This construction would subject the president to trial on virtually every allegation that an action was unlawful or was taken for a forbidden purpose. Adoption of this construction thus would deprive absolute immunity of its intended effect. It is clearly within the President's constitutional and statutory authority to prescribe the manner in which the Secretary will conduct the business of the Air Force. 
because this mandate of office must include the authority to prescribe reorganizations and reductions in force, we conclude that petitioners' alleged wrongful acts lay well within the outer perimeter of his authority. Part 5 A rule of absolute immunity for the President will not leave the nation without sufficient protection against misconduct on the part of the Chief Executive. There remains the constitutional remedy of impeachment. In addition, there are formal and informal checks on presidential action that do not apply with equal force to other executive officials. The president is subjected to constant scrutiny by the press. Vigilant oversight by Congress also may serve to deter presidential abuses of office, as well as to make credible the threat of impeachment. Other incentives to avoid misconduct may include a desire to earn re-election, the need to maintain prestige as an element of presidential influence, and a president's traditional concern for his historical stature. The existence of alternative remedies and deterrents establishes that absolute immunity will not place the president above the law. For the president, as for judges and prosecutors, absolute immunity merely precludes a particular private remedy for alleged misconduct in order to advance compelling public ends. Part 6 For the reasons stated in this opinion, the decision of the Court of Appeals is reversed and the case is remanded for action consistent with this opinion. So ordered. We've come to the end of this opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us. <laughs>